This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. You are listening to 3RRR. It's an independent radio station, and it loves your support. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am, actually. It's a nice day. It's, you know, just cold. It's not raining. Uh, I was in Sydney on Friday. Oh yeah. my gosh! It was oh, yeah. Twenty-five, and I hadn't I hadn't seen the sun and felt so warm in several weeks. Yeah, but uh, then I came home. Yeah, Sydney, you know, people took it up, but uh, lots of traffic. I thought there was traffic exactly. here. It's getting around. My goodness. Yeah, I prefer Melbourne. Uh, now there's a mythical person sitting next to you who I just got a text from, who's still in her dressing gown, who will remain nameless, who has not come in today. Um, bit of a mix-up. Doesn't matter though. We've got Liv doing our Twitter feed, and she's on mic. Good morning, Liv. Morning, everyone. How's it going? How's your uh, how, how are the tweets going? Yeah, they're good. Rolling in. We got uh, hundred hundred thousand followers. You said yeah, about that. About yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> take that, Charlie Sheen. Uh, oh, oh I think my. actually, he might have a few more than that. Just anyway, a bit. now we're going to get into some science news. We do have a couple of very good guests today for you, folks. And a little bit later, um, because uh, by popular popular demand. I'm going to explain what Lagrange points are. So just forewarning, um, there'll be a bit of mess. I think it's important to to bring up that was popular demand. Yeah. Because, you know, it doesn't always roll off the tongue. No, but people really want to know about that. These are really unusual um, places out in space that uh, we use for various telescopes and things. So they're, they're kind of cool. And I'll, I'll try to explain how they work mathematically. They're, 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 they're pretty fascinating. Anyway, uh, some news, Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, I do. Well, so uh, there were a lot of things that that I saw in the news today, but one thing just struck me as fantastic because it was this great integration of science and policy. And so uh, marine protection areas or marine parks, yep. how they're defined is quite interesting. Normally they're defined to protect things like corals and turtles. Uh, and so you would define a marine protection area as basically how far off the coast you say there's no fishing in a particular region would be one way to define yeah, a marine okay. protection area. Yep. As it turns out, there's lots of studies that show, and, and people do try to take this into account, that's important to include the protection of predators, things like sharks, because they cause prey avoidance, they drive mm. diversity, but sharks themselves are also highly fished as well. Yeah. So you need marine protection areas to actually take on protecting more than just things like corals and turtles, because mm. corals, of course, protect fisheries for, for yeah. small fish spawning. And I know you and I have mentioned this quite a number of times on the show, but when you look at the reintroduction of wolves in Yosemite and yeah. the literal downstream effects of the entire ecosystem as a result of that apex predator and its importance being there, you can see, well, hang on, it's yeah. actually crucial that these top-level predators are protected as well. It, yeah, it really does. I mean, there it was wild. It changed the actual mm. ecology. It changed everything. The river. Yeah, yeah the river. Soil That's erosion. Right. I'm joking, yeah. we say downstream. It's like, no, it actually <laughs> changed the river quality. Yeah. Um, and, and so here, what mm. happened was, is this is a, a, some coral atolls um, in the Seychelles. They actually did a three-year acoustic tracking study. So they tagged 116 sharks, five different species, and 25 turtles. And over three years, tracked their migration patterns around this coral atoll. And from their conclusions of it, they went, well, you're, you're, the, the government's original marine protection area proposal said, well, we're going to make it this big. And they said, actually, it doesn't really capture that much of sharks. 
But if you make it a little bit bigger, you're going to capture like 34% of where the sharks live, and so you'll provide protection to them for, for spawning as well. And the difference here was not huge. It was defining the marine protection area, so the point where you go out to the ocean, instead of from the high tide marker, from the low tide coral reef marker. So literally, not such a big difference, but had a huge impact. And what's great about this is scientific study, recommended conclusion. The government went, this is great. We have a recommendation based on scientific evidence and put it into policy and set the marine protection area based on the science. Sounds like a fictional story, doesn't it? Uh, it, 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 it <laughs> well, it, it's just a, an example that we, yeah. we often, often miss the fact that it does happen a lot, that particularly is the further down you get into a government agency. Yeah that isn't subject to election turnover, mm-hmm. these are the people that actually work and look for scientific evidence to base policy. Yeah, the stuff that isn't, you know, newspaper front cover material, but very important, is and, uh, is done, some, a lot of it's done properly. Exactly. And so it was just such a great example of seeing evidence-based decision-making on, on marine management. And, and Australia has great examples as well. This one just made it in the news. There are plenty of ones that, as you said, the, the higher the level, the more media attention mm-hmm. the tend we struggle to always see the policy track with the science. Mm. It, it's not that the obviously in any recommendation there's a lot of stakeholders, and you have to listen to all of them. But when you actually do it based on evidence of science and incorporate that, you can get such a great outcome. Mm. Uh, and, and so that was an interesting example of that. Yeah. Now, look, I wanted to talk about something that um, a bit of a bit of news. It's one of those pieces when I started reading it, I thought, wow, this is just so fascinating. You know, why have we not looked at this or thought about this before? But then I got to a point where I read it and I thought, oh, no, um, that's the way they're doing the science. So kind of I'm going to talk about it because I think it's fascinating. I'd love to see opportunities to do this in different ways. But I'm also going to put a bit of a caveat to this and say, you know, I'm not big on using primates in research. That's something I have a bit of an issue with. And this research did that in a major way with a relatively negative or, or almost zero gain to it so this this was work that was done by um uh well one of the authors uh y- yumiko ishizawa from the harvard, harvard medical school massachusetts uh, general hospital in the u.s and it's been published in um the journal of neuroscience and it's basically looking at the way in which anesthesia actually works so there's this common perception that you know when you put someone under using anesthesia your brain just sort of suddenly switches off and you're out and in fact this is not what's happening at all in fact your brain is shutting down in different ways at different times and different functions are shutting down in you know sequentially and and what they found was when they looked at this um parts of the brain kind of intermittently flicker in a way so they don't it's not like switching off a, a globe in one shot and it's not just like dimming a globe down it kind of flickers on and off and parts of it kind of stagger into unconsciousness. And there are, there are networks that get, um, desynchronized, if you like. So these nice synchronized networks in the brain start to sort of fire inappropriately. You know, they, they mismatch. But then when you're completely under, they synchronize again. So there's some, there's some very interesting dynamics going on in the brain that we, we really haven't looked at in too much detail so before. The, the transients there are, are a little odd. I mean, if you've ever had to have a, child have surgery yeah they uh, actually when they knock they, they they let you be there to as the kid goes under and then they whisk you out of the room yeah because there's some very natural things that occur when you go to under yeah. anesthesia you don't necessarily want to see your kid do because yeah. you know you, yeah. because the body the, does weird stuff yeah the body does weird stuff yeah. at that point so yeah. uh, and so the way the way they determine this basically is um you know n- normally um you know eegs and so forth are used to to study 
the brain and so forth. But the, the way they did this was they actually implanted uh, electrodes, um, you know, into into the, the brains themselves to monitor the brain activity. And this is where I have a bit of an issue because I think um, a lot more hard work and a lot more time will probably yield other opportunities to do this. But instead, they did this work on, on monkeys, which, um, I, I, as I say, I have a bit of an issue with. So it's an interesting area. I think it's fascinating. We should do more on it. And we've had guests on recently talking about mapping brain activity in different ways. Um, I'm not big on sticking electrodes into large primates' brains so- in order to monitor that. And the, the issue for me was also that um, uh, there was a, another a researcher who was not involved from the University of Cambridge, and he described the work as elegant, and he said it isn't clear what to make of the findings. So there's, there's a lot of very, um, I would say, fairly invasive work being done here, and for findings that are completely, you know, uh, out there, yeah, I think we, so, a lot more work required, and, and maybe try and do it in another way. I, I don't know how easy it is to put a, a monkey in an MRI, but I know for other brain activity studies, when they uh, they did the uh, the work in the UK, uh, this is a couple of years ago about mm-hmm. uh, brain activity for football players after yeah. years. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, there were challenges there too. Two of the football players out of the eighteen didn't actually fit in the MRI. <laughs> yeah, um, you can imagine that. But uh, and I don't know how it is to work with primates with those type of techniques. But there are other things out there. Yeah, and, and I say that naively, not knowing cost associated with it. But yeah, and I think if, if cost is the the reason for doing it in this way, then that's no reason at all. That would be my argument. So anyway, look, it, it, as I say, it's an area of science that I find incredibly fascinating. How the brain reacts, how the body reacts during this sort of um, this change, you know, chemical change to our bodies. Um, but please don't. Do it this way if you can find an alternative. I think that's the way to go. So, hmm. anyway, what else you got, right? Uh, oh, right. So, um, there was an, an interesting study that ended up in Nature just the end of last month, um, where uh, Australia ended up being the Australia's research discovery program ended up being the focus of research. Not because we did anything wrong or right. It was just as it turns out, we're really good funding buddy to study. So for those of you that might not know, the Australian Research Council is this fantastic organization that funds a great deal, funds a large fraction of the fundamental research across almost every discipline of science, humanities, everything but medical clinical research. That's, of course, the NHMRC. Well, what this group did was is they looked at the last five years of submissions of ARC Discovery Program grants. So that's about 18,000 grants. And just remember, in terms of workload, each grant probably represents 40 to 60 hours of yeah. work yeah, by, by academics. So that's a huge amount of work. So these are very well thought out proposals for programs of research we might try to do. And what they were looking for was not to see, oh, what did engineering get funded? Did science get funded? Because we understand how that works. Uh, what regions? They actually said, well, you know, a lot of times breakthroughs occur in fields where you have people working together, and this would be called interdisciplinary research. It could be a chemical engineer working with a mechanical engineer, or it could be a mechanical engineer working with a clinician who's a, a, a physician. You could see artists working, with the historians working with uh, people in mathematics looking at big data. You could look at digitization of artifacts. You could look at using chemistry to better understand the degradation of a painting and art conservation. You can see lots of examples where different parts of science come together, and that's really exciting. Um, but what they were looking at was this, this concern globally uh, that, you know what, it is really exciting. The outcomes of interdisciplinary approaches to solving scientific problems tend to be really fascinating 
and and achieve goals you wouldn't have otherwise come to if people worked on their own. But there's always this concern of how easily they're funded. Mm. Because there's always this concern, well, funding agencies largely work by topics or disciplines. Well, we're going to look at all the chemical engineers together. We're going to look at all the chemists together, the physicists, the biologists, and decide which one of those ideas is most worthy to support based on finite taxpayer resources. So we need a process to do that. And and what they found was statistically, every time there were interdisciplinary researchers, all of those proposals across the board, regardless of the disciplines they're going across, all were less likely to be funded Ooh. than if they were stayed within their discipline regions. And, and that's, I mean, to you, to you and I, who worked uh, on these boundaries over the years, that's not a surprise to hear that because we, we know that it is difficult sometimes to put, put these things through, although everyone keeps talking collaborate, you know, into all these things, all these buzzwords, but in reality... When you go and put in the grants for them, it's harder to get them. It is. And, mm. and, and what, it, what the study suggests they confirmed was that, uh, and this is a letter in Nature from came out in the end of June, was it, it confirmed the idea that we were always had what, that reviewer, we, our suspicion is that reviewers struggle to review properly across different areas. Mm. So while you have interdisciplinary researchers, the reviewers are still in their different disciplines and they don't necessarily know how to evaluate or value yeah. the contribution yeah. from the other area. Uh, and, and they, they didn't want to pick on, they're not, the study wasn't picking on Australia. They simply mm. said the Australian Research Council Discovery Program has an annual call and it was across all branches yep. of science. So it was an so idea, works, well. works yeah. well in an idea, mm. an ideal system to study that they yeah. think these findings are relevant to other areas as well. So that, that's, that's a challenge going forward. It's not a surprise for people that work across discipline boundaries. For someone that does work across discipline boundaries, I can say the rewards and the excitement of working yeah. with other people often mitigate that risk, yeah. but but we do know that going in sometimes, yeah. so it's an interesting observation. Now, I want to quickly, uh, you know, I did a very bad brain story. Uh, <laughs> I want to give you a good one. Um, this this is from a, a guy named uh, David Van Essen from the Washington University in St. Louis, and he's taken 220 healthy people, volunteers, okay. and has produced, and this was um, basically, this, this was put in Nature on July 20, uh, you know, most prestigious journal in the world um the most detailed new map of the human brain that has ever been produced so you know this in contrast to the study with the monkeys 210 people by looking at what the brain does under certain activities what it does when you're not doing anything at all and and combining that with structural data of the brain he has produced this new map um basically showing over one or some 180 areas of the brain unique areas and in addition to that how those areas interact with one another and the best part is what types of interactions they have so i for those of you out there listening this is hard to see but i'm going to hold it up to dr ray oh there there are parts of the brain here where there's say four or five areas that are in green that indicates that all of those areas interact with each other on a certain style of activity. And then just next to them, there might be some in brown, and those ones act on a different activity, but they don't really interact with the green ones. And so there's this in- incredibly detailed new map of the human brain as a result of using some human you know, volunteers who are willing to do these tasks and so forth. So I think it's a great example of how... If you take the time, do this sort of work, you know, this is now the benchmark for brain mapping. And I, I sent this to, you know, a, a colleague of mine and someone who's been on the show many times. She works on epilepsy, uh, Mark Cook, and he was just blown away. He said, this is fascinating. Um, so, you know, Dr. Shane, 
I'm waiting for the Google Apps map version. Yeah, of that to come yeah, out. Really, yeah, to be able I to would... surf around and have a look. Um, it's, it's fascinating, but it just goes to show that you know you can get incredibly detailed information on these sorts of things by going through the research in a methodical way with the right people, you know, supporting you and so forth. So, congrats to uh, David Van Essen for producing wow. the most detailed detailed map of the human brain currently available. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment with our first guest for today. Uh, if you want to keep your kidneys healthy, I think this is the one to listen to. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. In the studio now, we have Dr. Yagish Lenkadeva, who is a National Heart Foundation Research Fellow, uh, Systems Neurophysiology Division at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health in the University of Melbourne. Yagish, welcome to the studio. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. Now, we, uh, we met a little while back. You were giving uh, one of these three-minute thesis-type talks, you know, where you have to give the whole thing in three minutes. And, um, and I thought, you know... This guy might be all right. The, uh, you had a slide back then, though, a picture, so we're going to have to do this about pictures. You good for that? That's going to be a bit of a challenge, but I'll try my best, yeah. Now, you work in the area of um, kidney failure and, and, and the sorts of things that uh, occur there. Give us a rundown first. I mean, the, the kidney, what does the kidney do in the body, and, and what does it mean for it to fail? So um, the kidneys are mainly you, um, functioning to kind of regulate electrolytes and water balance in our mm-hmm. body. So if the kidneys don't work popul- properly, it builds up waste products within our body that becomes toxic to our tissues and that will in turn lead other organs to fail and increase rates of mortality. Okay. And so this, this failure, what, what sort of things would normally cause this? I mean, I can imagine if you have a physical injury to the kidney, obviously that's a problem, but what other things would cause kidney failure? So lots of things can call for kidney, cause kidney failure and it can result from other pathological conditions such as hypertension or um, heart failure, for instance. But yeah. the condition that I am focusing on is septic shock, okay. which is the largest or the leading cause of a sudden kidney failure in patients. Mm. Okay, and when I mean septic shock, what is this? What, when do we when do we find this? So septic shock is pretty much an overwhelming immune reaction to an underlying infection that in turn causes damage to our own organs, bo- organs and body's organs and tissues. Okay. Um, so one of the organs that are commonly implicated during this condition are the kidneys. Okay. Where fifty percent of all patients with sepsis develop kidney failure, and one third of these patients do not leave the hospital alive. Right, and and these are infections that are gained during surgery or people coming in with these infections? I mean, what, what's caused... I mean, this is a big... Obviously, uh, not, you know, I've cut my finger and have a small infection. This is a, a system-wide problem, presumably. That's right. Um, so, sepsis can be contracted, like, 70% of the cases from our community mm-hmm. and 30% of the cases from healthcare or hospital okay. settings. So, this is especially prevalent in patients that have pre-existing health conditions, um, such as AIDS or diabetes or chronic yeah. uh, kidney disease. Um, liver failure that where their immune system is too weak to fight off these infections and then it's like you said it just spreads all around the body causing damage to its organs mm. and, and why are the kidneys sort of one of the first well are they the first to go it sounds like i mean they're the cleaning up uh, exactly organs. so i mean so are they literally the first to go in they this are one of the first to go during this um condition unfortunately i mean it starts off by affecting our cardiovascular system mm-hmm. but then most of these waste products as you said are clean from our kidneys so this Organ is particularly susceptible during septic shock. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, presumably, I mean, there are some risk factors here where people go in, and and different people have different risk factors. How do you know 
that you're in a category that says, you know, if I'm going to get this sort of surgery, there's a good chance I'll have this problem. I mean, do, do we have an idea of that? No, right now we don't really know who really contracts sepsis from someone who doesn't. It really is an individual case. Mm. But there are risk factors that increase the chances of getting sepsis. Like I said, when they have a already weakened immune system mm. or they get, go through major surgeries where their immune system is already weak and in mm. newborn infants or the elderly, um, these risk groups are more pre- um, at, a, at a higher risk of developing septic mm. shock. Yeah. Now, one of the things I remember from the presentation you give is that you're looking at very deep within the kidney mm-hmm. at what's going on. I, I mean, I, I don't have an image of the kidney structurally. I mean, what's what are the differences between the sort of inner areas of the kidney and the outer areas and what it does? So the outer area of the kidney is called the cortex, and mm-hmm. this area of the kidney is mainly involved in the filtration process, whereas the inner zone of the kidney, which is called the medulla, is involved in electrolyte balance in our kidneys, like salt reabsorption, salt excretion, and this is where the urine gets produced. And what I basically found in my research is that during sepsis, during the first hour of the infection, there is very early reductions in blood supply to this inner zone of the kidney that deprives this region of oxygen, causing these cells to malfunction, and then in turn cause the kidneys to fail. Okay. So, so this presumably this is it, it's dying from the inside out. Yes, pretty much. And and what what happens in terms of the the other functions of the kidney? I mean, when you lose that inner function, does that mean the overall function goes as well, or is sort of sequentially? You know, what's the story there? What's happening? No, you're exactly on the ball on there because um because. All, the, all those, all those kidneys perform very distinct functions. They mm. are connected. Mm-hmm. So when the tubules fail, it will ultimately affect the filtration process and cause the filtration to go down. And if there's no urine, I mean, blood being filtered, then overall the kidney will fail. Kidney will fail. But yeah. the problem right now is that there is no ways to detect this happening in the patients because we can't really be sticking needles in the kidneys yeah, of yeah. these patients. Yep. So doctors don't have this knowledge that this is happening so early during this disease mm. to implement early preventive strategies. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm glad you got to that point because my question was not only how do you tell in a patient, but how on earth did you figure out that the blood supply to the inner part of a kidney was going down in the first hour of an infection, even in even in an animal model, that's, how, do, how, how do you actually measure that? Or is that some type of weird imaging? Or So we have actually developed this new technique to insert fiber optic probes into the inner zone and outer zone of the kidney that allows us to measure these variables in conscious animals during the disease. Mm. And this made us, I mean, so we have a real-time image of what's happening in the outer zone and in the inner zone during 48 hours of this condition. So this allowed us to see that these reductions were taking place within the first hour of the infection. So, so you can track that in, in real time mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a scenario where sepsis is, is, is starting to occur and so forth. What does that mean, though, in terms of, you know, obviously a patient goes into the hospital, you don't know that they have sepsis, you don't know that they're going to get um, kidney failure, and these things happen very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to poke fiber optic probes into their kidneys just to monitor them. I mean, I mean, how do you deal with that? So this is where the really interesting part of my results came in. So what we wanted to de- develop next is a biomarker that we can use in patients non-invasively to detect these reductions in oxygen levels. Mm-hmm. So it is a known fact, like I said, urine gets produced within the kidney yep. that de- then gets passed down and collected in our bladder. So I 
hypothesized, should I say, before my study, that the oxygen levels in the urine would equilibrate with oxygen levels in the kidney. Yeah, sure. So what I did was I inserted a standard bladder catheter, which is also a standard protocol in patients in the clinic because they're too critically ill, and then I inserted an oxygen probe to the tip of the bladder catheter to simultaneously measure oxygen levels in the urine and in the kidney. And what I saw was that the reductions in oxygen levels in the kidney were very closely paralleled by the reductions in oxygen levels in the urine, which makes urinary oxygenation a new non-invasive real-time biomarker to detect patients at risk of developing kidney failure even before it happens so well, early preventive strategies can be employed. That's fantastic. Uh, now, that's quick, quick, uh, quick sidebar for anyone out there who's been involved at some stage in, in catheter. The term standard catheter. I'm squirming in my seat. That does, there's nothing standard about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do, yeah, I mean, it happens, uh, in these situations when you're in your hospital. So this, this is a, a protocol that presumably, I mean, if I was going into surgery tomorrow, I would want to know that someone is monitoring my urine based on this research. I mean, so where are we in that process? Because as we know, you know, the translation from research into clinical care can take, well, depending on the scenario, can take decades. Yeah, so where are we? That's a really good question. Um, so Mike, um, I collaborate with Associate Professor Roger Evans at Monash mm-hmm. University, okay. who has already validated this technique in patients that are undergoing cardiac surgery, mm-hmm. which is also a major risk factor for yeah. developing kidney failure. And what he's basically found with his colleagues is that the Patients that have the lowest urinary oxygen levels during surgery are the ones that go on to develop kidney failure later on. Right. So we've, do, we've already validated, we are starting to validate this in cardiac surgery patients, and now I've shown this in a clinically relevant animal model of septic shock, and we are just about to start implementing this new device in patients with septic shock this coming August at Austin Health. That's fantastic. It's quick. Now, let's say, for example, you put the device in me and you get the early warning sign. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I mean, what, what can we... Can we prevent the kidney failure at that point, or is it just giving us more information? That's a really good question. So one of the main disadvantages in current clinical practice is that it relies on markers of kidney damage that has already happened. So, for instance, um, an example is serum creatinine, which is the traditional biomarker used to diagnose patients with septic shock is a very late stage marker of kidney mm. damage that has already happened so yeah. it's too late to kind of come in and start trying to revive these damaged kidneys but using this new biomarker clinicians have this information in hand where they see a reduction in oxygen levels in the urine yes they know there's a reduction in oxygen levels in the kidney now they can modify treatments to actually improve blood supply to the kidney mm. that will in turn improve oxygen levels which might prevent the harmful effects of low oxygen levels damage in the kidney. Yeah. Look, it's fascinating, Yugisha, and I think uh, I, I love any of this stuff that falls into what I would call the prevention category. As you say, you're, you're doing that early detection before the damage occurs rather than detecting the damage itself, which, you know, it's nice to know, but, gee, you know, you kind of, <laughs> you've kind of crossed the finish line by that stage, haven't you? It's um, very problematic. It's... Um, are there any alternatives to um, to this technique at the moment? This is, this is presumably pretty much the only one in the world. This is pretty much the only real-time biomarker that detects kidney injury before it happens because, like I said, the existing markers are all markers of kidney damage that yeah. has already happened. So this is really a holy grail that we've kind of, yeah, stepped on, and um, I think the possibilities for this technique is endless. Yeah, well done. Look, uh, and when you say August, I say next month. Yes, it uh, is next which month. Is, you know, <laughs> 2016, you know, yes. this, is, uh, this is incredibly fast. So hopefully a lot 
lot of people will benefit from this research. I'm sure they will. Um, congratulations and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Shane, and thanks for having me. Dr. Yugish Lenkadeva is a National Heart Foundation Research Fellow in the Systems Neurophysiology Division of the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health at the University of Melbourne and collaborating with Monash University. We're going to play some music, hopefully successfully this time, and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Three. In the studio, we have a PhD candidate, Brad Spicer. He's from the ARC Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging at Monash University. Brad, welcome to the studio. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you in here. We are going to talk a bit about blood and proteins and all this stuff. Um, I'm always fascinated to hear just how much stuff is in blood. I thought it was just, you know... A few things here and there, but it, people are using it for everything these days. Yeah. Um, one of the areas that you're working on is um, this idea of this thing called the complement system, which mm-hmm. I have to admit I hadn't really heard of. I mean, I'm, no, I'm, I'm a physics guy. You're a, he's a chemical engineer. You know, all the biologists out there going, you what? You know, <laughs> it's like you haven't heard of planets. You know, um, what, what's the complement system as part of our blood yeah. blood supply? So um, the the fluid portion of our blood is a is about 50% of our blood by weight. So if you were to spin down your blood in a tube, half of that would be the red blood cells, yep. and then the other half would be this yellow fluid stuff, and it's full of protein that are important for our immune system. Okay. And um, so there's sort of this two wings of the immune system. There's the innate immune system, which kind of goes out and indiscriminately kills off bacteria. Mm-hmm. And um, then there's also this adaptive branch, which is important for making our um, antibodies. And so the complement system is sort of in between both, and it complements both the activity of the innate and adaptive immune system. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. And, and this is made up of particular proteins, I understand. Yes. Um, and, and what do they do? I mean, what's you, you, you mentioned the other two parts of the immune system. Mm-hmm. This is a, a third part. Yep. I mean, what does it do? Well, there's a lot of functions that they have, and there's about 30 or more of these complement proteins that are floating around in our blood at any given time. Um, the one in particular that I work on, um, it forms these ring-like shapes on bacteria. And what it does is it makes these rings in a very specific fashion and after it assembles this ring on the bacteria it punches down into the membranes so they're like the world's smallest hole punchers and Mm. it's able to help in killing these bacteria okay so this i mean this is kind of we don't hear about this kind of physical attack um very often when we talk about the immune system usually there's there's chemical attacks of yeah that type but this this sounds like a a physical attack they're, they're literally destroying a part of the membrane and offering up a, an entry point for other for other things is that right yes that's absolutely right so that's also something that we're interested in investigating is um how it is this pore or this ring that forms on the membrane is able to 
kill the bacteria. So is it letting something else in mm-hmm. into the cell that actually does the killing, or is it just forming that pore which is able to kill these bacteria? Right. Yeah, the pore itself might, yeah. you know, and the stuff leaks out of the way. Yes, disrupts, <laughs> breaks, the it disrupts the way it works. Mm-hmm. So when you say form a pore in a membrane, are we talking it created one hole or the thing is turning the membrane into a strainer with a bunch of holes? I mean, that would, <laughs> that would suggest mechanism as well, wouldn't it? Um, so it, it could be that it's just forming like one hole or, um, you know, there's actually a really a lot of this protein floating around in our blood. It makes up um, a, somewhere on the order of 5 to 15% of all the mm. proteins that are in our bloodstream. So it could be sort of turning these uh, bacteria into Swiss cheese, yeah. for all we know. Yeah. And, and how do you, I mean, first of all, how do you go about determining that this is happening? I mean, would you grab a bacteria out and have a look at it and go look there's a ring in the hole (laughs) i mean how do you actually how do you determine this um so the technique that i focus on at least is um known as cryoelectron microscopy and so what we're able to do is we're able to put our protein onto a very small mesh um and then put that under an electron microscope and Mm -hmm. image the protein the way it looks in our blood or very similar to that and from that what we can do is we obtain all these uh, projected images from shooting the electrons at the protein and uh, what we can do is then form a, a model of what we think the protein looks like okay so the word cryo em and and then saying it looks just like it doesn't when it, it's in water. I, I think correct me if I'm wrong. You're talking about a technique that literally will take your bacteria in water and you freeze it down so quickly using things like liquid helium or liquid nitrogen so that you form a very t- special type of ice mm-hmm. that, that doesn't crystallize. So it would make the creamiest ice cream in the world, aside from bad bacteria. And then you're able to, I guess, ablate or sublime the water. So you're able to see just the, the structure of something that kind of the way it was in water. Is that right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty close. Um, so yes, we, we freeze our sample very quickly in what's known as vitreous ice. So in, in our case, we typically use, uh, liquid ethane. Um, in, in my, particular case we actually are able to form these rings by tricking the protein so we don't actually form them on bacteria so we know that they look um, very similar to how they would assemble on a bacteria but we can do it without any bacteria so just the protein in inside a tube Mm. basically Mm. liquid ethane Um, in in my particular case we actually are able to form these rings by tricking the protein so we don't actually form them on bacteria so we know that they look um, very similar to how they would assemble on a bacteria but we can do it without any bacteria so just the protein in inside a tube Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. and i mean what what does this um mean in terms of sort of control you know there's a lot of efforts these days to control the immune system to enhance the immune system and in some cases you know certain autoimmune diseases to to dull the immune system down i mean what 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 role do you think these proteins can play in that space because you know we're, we're going from fighting cancer to infections to you know all sorts of things these days i mean the immune system is one of those areas in the next 10 years that will just you know explode in terms of uh, interest so mm-hmm. what where does this stuff 
understand. So, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely right. And the immune system is kind of this double-edged sword. You don't want it to be overworking, but you want it to uh, also be able to kill bacteria. And so one of the aspects to look at is trying to modulate how it could be assembling if it's yeah i mean the human immune system has many parallels in the animal kingdom as well you know i mean to sometimes to a lesser or greater extent in terms of complexity i mean i mean do we see these sorts of proteins and these rings and these membrane punches uh, in, in other areas as well or is this something specific to humans yes actually uh the very cool thing about this is that um these types of proteins are found in all walks of life, all the way from bacteria, which will use them to enhance how toxic they are to, right. to us. So the proteins are, are used by the bacteria and to, to affect us. Well, they and, have their own. Yeah, yeah. And, we're, and we're using them to, yeah, okay. Yes, so <laughs> they, they actually are able to form uh, these pores and use it for a completely different you know, uh, activity. And in uh, another case that we study actually in our lab, it comes from the uh, the oyster mushroom. So these are things that people actually eat. And the oyster mushroom is able to use this in a predaceous way to kill tiny little worms and get kind of a snack for itself. Right. Well, that's uh, unexpected. Uh, yeah, so there <laughs> yeah. are actually carnivorous mushrooms out there. Yeah. And, and what's doing, I mean, you, you form this ring and then this creates this hole. I mean, what's, what's causing the hole to open up? Do we, do we understand that? Um, actually, we don't have a very good understanding about what's causing that middle bit to sort of leak out, um, as it, as it were. Mm. But, um, we know that after the, the proteins, they assemble on top of a membrane. They'll all kind of punch in at once. Um, and it's something about that conformational change or this change in shape that it undergoes that is able to form the pore and cause the, the leaking of whatever is on the inside. Yeah. Look, it's a uh, very interesting stuff. The, the complement system, as I say, is something I hadn't heard of before. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on in the body that I don't know about. I find out about each week. Or um, the membrane attack complex. Yeah, yeah, the membrane yeah. attack and, complex. And warfare between our membrane attack complexes and bacteria membrane yeah. attack complexes. That's <laughs> detailed stuff. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. This is a, a, an area that, uh, you know, to be honest, I, I had no idea was going on. And it's, um, it's something that's very fascinating. Good to, good to hear that um you know this uh, both dr ray and i are big fans of uh, unique types of high resolution imaging so we, we love to hear a good story uh, <laughs> that involves that so uh, you're in your third year are you a phd yeah, third, yeah. yeah that's so, correct so writing up <laughs> I have about a year and a half left. Year and a half to go. Get yeah. your skates on, fella. Come on. <laughs> Do you remember Dr. Ray when you used to have to... Anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah these, the kids these days. <laughs> Brad, thanks so much for coming in, and uh, good luck finishing off your PhD. Yeah. And this is a, a fascinating area. Good luck. Thanks so much for having me. Brad Spicer, PhD candidate in the ARC Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging down at Monash University. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, uh, put your thinking caps on, folks, because I'm going to explain a lot points to you and there could be a little bit of mass maybe not but you know I might chuck some in just for fun you're listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3 Triple R here's some music 3 Triple
uh, we uh, put out a little call on our Facebook site. If you if you don't follow us on Facebook, you should. And just recently, we put out a call for topics that we thought people might want to um, have described or explained. Yeah, and you know, the ones I put up there just didn't go. I was no, like, you know, how, sorry, why, how quickly does it take to fry an egg? How do you have brown <laughs> onions? Those things just didn't. Not having. And uh, and then there's a team, uh, and this was kind of funny. We were trying to find a name for these new segments. And I think the winner was my suggestion of knowledge nuggets, which Dr. Crystal said, there's no way in hell I'm calling it that. <laughs> I thought it had a ring to it. But um, anyway, uh, bad connotation in her mind, I think. So anyway, um, we got some great some suggestions from a few yeah. of our listeners. And uh, last week, uh, actually, Dr. Crystal explained... Um, uh, some of the gene splicing and things that that happened, which was really cool, and I got uh, lumped this week with um, with Lagrange points, which was <laughs> the next knowledge nugget. Yeah, and I th- next knowledge nugget. Well, mine is a knowledge nugget, no doubt about that. And um, and I thought, okay, Lagrange points. I have actually talked about this once before when we were doing a segment on the James Webb Telescope a few years back, um, when it was first announced that it would be sent so- up. Dr. Shane, I know you say Lagrange points, but I always think Lagrange multiplier from calculus of variation and minimizing the free energy of a system for... Well, you, you know, and you have your own fantasies, Dr. Okay. Ray. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Is that what you think of, Liv? I have no idea what it is. There you go. Um, so, look, uh, you, you, look, you're not far off because um, there was an Italian-French mathematician uh, back in the 18th century named Joseph Louis Lagrange who did some amazing things, many great, uh, amazing things, and many things were named after him. And, um, in fact, uh, in 1972, he worked out the solution to what is referred to as the general three-body problem. So this is basically if you have um, two large bodies, like uh, let's just say the Earth and the Sun for sake of this discussion, and you want a third object to orbit around rhythm. So essentially you have three objects orbiting together. So if you think of the Earth and the Sun, I mean, it kind of feels like we go around the Sun, um, but actually we both go around a point that is um, the sort of the centre of mass between our two objects. Now, we don't sort of see that because it's basically, you know, I think it's actually inside the sun or so close to it, it's not funny. So essentially we orbit around the sun. But if you take a third object and you say, okay, well, where could that go and orbit with the Earth? So, you know, keep up with this and it might be, you know, 20 days behind in our orbit or it might be 20 days in front or it might be 100 days in front. But is there a, a location where you can put a third object and for that to be stable? So for it to orbit around with us. And this is this idea of this general three-body problem, which um, was solved by Lagrange back in, in, a, paper, in a paper he uh, put out in 1772. And we're still using it today, which is kind of cool. Anyway, um, as it will turn out, there are actually five locations, five Lagrange points, where this stability, this point in our orbit occurs where you can put a third object, so you've got the sun, the earth, and the third object, and that third object will orbit around with the earth. So not on the earth, but near the earth or somewhere around the earth. So, but, but it'll go along in our orbit. It's not going to orbit the earth like no, the moon. No, this is no, it goes along in our orbit. That's okay. right. It'll go around. Well, it's sort of in its own orbit in a way. Um, some of these Lagrange points are actually on the line of our orbit, and some of them aren't. So let me give you the first one, which sort of makes um, pretty, it's pretty easy to work out. Partway between the Earth and the Sun, there is a point where the gravitational pull from the Sun and the gravitational pull from the Earth is equal. 
that kind of mm. you know we can kind of imagine that um, now obviously that's a lot closer to the earth than it is to the sun because you know if you want the gravity from the earth to equal the gravity from the sun given the earth is pretty small compared to the sun you have to be much closer to the earth than to the sun so so that's called that's actually called the l1 lagrange point and that point will if you put something there it will orbit around um with us Mm-hmm. On the line, so there's a line, imaginary line that runs between the Earth and the Sun, and that L1 Lagrange point is on that line. So if you put something there, it'll always be between us and the Sun. Now, this is actually um, uh, where, for example, we put the SOHO spacecraft. So this is the solar observatory that monitors the Sun. It's partway between the Earth and the Sun, and it's always there. Now, this Lagrange point is one that's not entirely stable. So if you put something there, it'll hang around for about 23-odd days, and then your spacecraft has to make a minor adjustment just to keep it in position. Okay, so that's that's one of them. And it's it's basically just where, where gravity equals out. Um, Remember that when you're spinning around the orbit of something, this is like having a ball on a string and winding it around or spinning it around your head. Um, something's got to pull you in. So you won't, you won't um, stay in orbit unless there's enough gravity to keep you in orbit. Mm-hmm. So that L1 Lagrange point meets both the conditions of being equally pulled from the Earth and the Sun, but there's also got enough force pulling towards the Sun that it orbits the sun with us, yeah, in line with us. Now, there's another point called an L2 Lagrange point, which is on the other side of the Earth. So you've got the sun, the Earth, and then a little bit further out, you've got another one of these points. And these are just points where all the gravity adds up just right so that that object can orbit the sun. And there are, there are basically three of these in line with the Earth-Sun system. So if you drew a line between the Earth and the sun, you'll find three points along that line, or, you know, just... Um, past the Earth in some cases, where these stable um, points exist. And we put a lot of different things in these points because they have unique properties. One is it's very easy to keep things there and keep them lined up with the Earth. So, for example, the James Webb Telescope is going to be at the L2 Lagrange point now or near that. This is This is a point that, so you've got the Sun, then you've got the Earth, and then just past the Earth is one of these stable points. And if you put the James Webb Telescope there, it has some really great features, or or near there. Um, First of all, it's pretty much always in sunlight, so the solar panels will charge. It's always going to be in communication with the Earth, because it can always see the Earth. And on on the side of the telescope that's not facing the sun, it will always be in darkness. So one side of the telescope will always face the sun, that's where the solar panels are. The other side of the craft, which has got the telescope on it, will always face away, so always be in darkness and it'll be nice and cold so all the electronics work work well. So this Lagrange point is, is really um, quite unique. So Dr. Shane, the, the James Webb Telescope is not going to be like a satellite orbiting Earth. No, in fact... That's really different in my yeah, head. I had not yeah, realised that. And, and, and this is one of the amazing things about the Webb Telescope is the moon is just under 400,000 kilometres from the Earth. Yeah. The James Webb Telescope will be at the L2 Lagrange point, which is 1.5 million kilometres away. So this is basically about five times the distance from the Earth to the moon. So one of the issues of that, and people would remember how many times the Hubble telescope went up and repair, was repaired by um, the space shuttle crews, is that once the James Webb is up there, it's up there and it's all alone. There's no repair missions. This is basically, you know, the moon's about a three-day trip. Yeah. This is, 
you know, five mm. times that distance. There's no, there's no getting there easily. So you've Not got to put a, it up there and leave it there. Not without a moon base. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's the L2 Lagrange point. Now, so it's easy to imagine these points between the Earth and the Sun and along that line because that's where we see everything equaling out. But what if there were a couple of other points? And there are actually two other points. One is called the L4 and one is called the L5. And these are ones that are a bit harder to imagine. So, I want you to think of an equilateral triangle, a triangle with three equal sides and three equal angles. One of those sides is a line between the Earth and the Sun. Now, to make up the other two sides, you have to find another point off to the side. So this is a point that's kind of ahead of us in the orbit, and these are where you get the L4 and L5 Lagrange points. So they're either ahead of us in the orbit or behind us, and they meet all those same conditions of gravity that um, the other two do. So if I think of the orbit as a circle, and, yeah. and I have an equilateral triangle, and the distance between the sun and the earth is one of the legs, the other two legs are kind of I'm inscribing that triangle so yeah. the next vertex hits somewhere else circle. on the circle. Yeah. So that's pretty far ahead. It's like yeah, not it's, right next to. Yeah, it's, it's about it's it's actually about a sixth of the orbit. It's it's you know quite a quite a you know several months ahead of us. And so these L4 and L5 Lagrange points are, are ahead of us and behind us. Now, one way to think of them is if you if you think of what happens at these points, I like to think of them as basically um hills. So it's like putting a ball on top of a hill. It can roll off Right. Whereas if you think of the ones that are in line, the L1, 2 and 3 Lagrange points are more like a saddle. Okay. A saddle, if you put a ball in the middle of a saddle, can roll off to the sides, but can't roll off the front and the back. And this is the, the gravity is exactly like that for these various Lagrange points. So the question is, if I'm on the hill, why don't I just roll away? What you've got to remember is the whole thing is oscillating around a, a central point. So this is a, a, an orbit. And the same thing that causes a hurricane to turn one way in the northern hemisphere and the other way in the southern hemisphere is what keeps you, you fall off the hill, but you actually orbit around the hill. So these are quite stable Lagrange points. Um, you, you end up just hanging about there. And in fact, if you look there, um, in the Earth moon, system or in the Earth-Sun system or Jupiter and its moon systems, you'll find a whole other gunk that's accumulated over the years because it's stable. The stuff sits there. And so these Lagrange points are very important, very special. We put all sorts of stuff there and without them, um, you know, we'd have to use a lot more fuel um, for these spacecraft to keep them in the locations we want them to be. So interesting stuff. I learned I something. I hope that made some sense, Liv. It did. I understood it. You okay? Yeah. yeah. I'm good. You good? <laughs> and to the three people out there who got it, thanks. <laughs> anyway, we're going to have to uh, finish up because uh, we've got to hand over to the team from Eat It. Uh, we've got a big show coming up next week for you and a few more real uh, super shows coming up before Radiothon with some international guests. But until then, um, have a great Sunday. I think it's still sunny outside. It was blue skies when I got here, so hopefully it's blue skies for the rest of the day. Remember, science is everywhere, and thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday. Einstein and GoGo was presented by Squarespace, a scientific way to create a beautiful website with designer templates, an easy-to-use interface, and award-winning 24-7 support. You can start your free trial at squarespace.com. Use offer code triple R to save 10%. Squarespace, triple R sponsors. Hey, guys, why don't we eat? Dear Doc, or the boss, I'll have your spam. I love it. I'm in spam, spam, spam. Corn 